I don't want to talk about this episode. I don't. So. Where to begin? In the opening crawl, there's a bit where a ship is approaching them at a half impulse. They're like, oh, okay, well, let's go hang out with them. They are in the middle of traveling to a nebula, which they say is less than a light year away, and they will be at in a few hours. That means they're going at warp. You see the problem here? <laughs> you're probably thinking, Lord, you're getting nitpicky. Yeah, but... This is such an easy and stupid thing to fix. Sort of, there's a ship approaching at warp two. Bam! Problem solved. But no, no, you insisted on putting the flaw into the script. And no one caught it, so here we are. This actually resulted in me doing a little bit of a dive while the episode was going on into the nature of impulse drive and how it's usually portrayed. As you might imagine, it is incredibly inconsistent. One of the things that is implied in TOS in particular is that impulse is a substantially less efficient method of transportation and is generally designed for moving at sublight speeds but can actually maintain faster than light speeds under the right circumstances. But the problem is that will of course burn out the fuel, burn out reserves, and burn out the engines. So you don't really want to do that. That actually kind of makes a degree of sense until we add in the warp bubble, which is necessary to enter warp space, which is necessary to go faster than light. I don't know. I, 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 impulse is all over the place. Sometimes it's just a convenient way of moving at sublight. Sometimes they specifically mention the exact speeds, which have been established in both TOS Voyager and the motion picture. Naturally, all of those speeds completely disagree with each other, because why would anyone actually have a standardized system of speed? That's ridiculous. As I've pointed out several times... God, I think it came up in TNG, but I have definitely pointed this out before. Even warp speeds, the exact same warp speeds, are inconsistent, even within the same show. So, that's fun. Anyways, you're probably thinking, Laura, why are you looking up impulse drive during this episode? Because this episode's boring! Oh my god! Like, the the Cove thing was actually pretty cool. I, I thought he was an interesting character, and he was like nice down-to-earth thing, and there was a decent scene or two, and he had the best character piece. And then there's the guy played by Chris Pine's dad, who I can't even remember his name. It's Robert Pine is the name of the actor. He also played uh, Liara over in The Shoot on Voyager, the obstinate bureaucrat of that episode. And then we have Creepmaster 5000. So, what happens here is they approach a warp ship at impulse. And, again, I wouldn't make quite as much of a thing, but it's literally the same scene. There's not even an edit. Anyways. And they're like, hey, our, uh, you know, we're here, and hi, how are things going? You know things are bad on your show when a Vulcan, who are supposed to be the good guys, being cordial and polite, not very emotive, just cordial and polite, is considered dun 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 enough in order to justify a cold open. Because that is the cold open. The guy being polite. 
I wonder who looked at that at what point in time and realized that was a problem. I will verify. I can verify for those of you who have seen this show and minorly spoil for those of you who haven't that this is a problem that the creators actually do acknowledge and then dedicate several episodes to resolving in the future. But I get the really strong impression that wasn't deliberate. I don't know. We'll see when we get there. But I have seen nothing to indicate that the Vulcans are anything other than just being badly portrayed. So here we are. Also, during the dinner scene, they've managed to put creep face in maximum creep distance from T'Pol. The Robert Pines character is talking straight to uh, Archer. And creep face, I'm sorry, to Talaris, I think, Talaris. He's like this, and he's just creeping. I, I can't even do it. I can't even do this. He's just leering at her. Like, in such an obvious way that anybody watching this episode can immediately be like, okay, yeah, he's the bad guy. Like, whatever else is going on, he's the bad guy. Oh, my God. This is also the first episode that really starts to establish the idea that Vulcans, that is to say the species, are vegetarians. And I mentioned the whole boredom thing, so congratulations. We're about to go down uh, the, the rabbit patch hole again here. It's a terrible analogy, Lord. What is wrong with you? We're going to go into Wonderland on this one, okay? Now, I'm not an expert on dietary sciences, but since I was so bored during this episode, I did a little bit of cursory looking things up and verified that what I already knew is at least partially true. We gain energy from fat, uh, fat carbohydrates, and, of course, protein. There are other things, but those are the big three, right? Of those, protein tends to be the biggin' because it has the most density of calories and takes the longest to process. The general inclination there being that if you are someone who is, you know, bulking, someone who has a lot of muscles, someone who is very active, you need a larger amount of protein in your diet. Pretty simple, right? Hell, I have more than, you know, a decent amount of protein in my diet just to establish the pathetic and worthless amount of muscles that I have. I can't even imagine an actual bodybuilder's diet. Now, having said all that, this is all, you're probably thinking, what are you getting on, Lore? Well, um, Vulcans are superhuman. They have super smart brains, which use up way more energy, are partially psychic, and are literally physically super strong. Now, I know, I know. We, someone actually has sat down and done the math and figured out how many hamburgers or whatever a Vulcan would have to eat every day, and it's nonsense. But even from a soft science perspective, I would assume that a Vulcan would eat more food in general and more protein in particular to maintain their existence. In point in fact, this is actually something that has actually come up with regards to Klingons, who also heavily prefer meat. Go figure. Now, I point this out because... Well, that's exactly the point, isn't it? Klingon diet is actually something that's tied into their physiology. Loosely, softly, but it's there. So why are suddenly Vulcans vegetarians? So I did a little looking into this, and it turns out that near as I can tell, and we'll see as we go through TOS if there's anything to support this, Spock was a vegetarian, therefore Vulcans are vegetarians. Anybody who's ever watched or studied Star Wars knows exactly what this particular phenomenon is. They take something from the original work, and because it was that way in the original work, they expand upon it, and now it's that way for everyone else. Pretty simple t uh, concept that I don't necessarily agree with, and I feel is a little bit too simple, especially when applied in ways that actively doesn't make sense. See Star Wars for 
many examples of this. So the idea that every Vulcan is a vegetarian actually bothers me. I just look at that and go, really? You, you, really? I don't have any problem with Spock preferring that. Really? I have no problem with T'Pol preferring that. It's a nice callback. But uh, Tuvok actually does eat eggs in one scene, and I don't recall him ever being big on being a vegetarian. I, I don't... It's been a little bit. It's, in fact, been since the rumination, since I rewatched Voyager. And that was like six or seven years ago at this point. So I don't remember. Please feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. But I don't recall Tuvok ever making a point of being a vegetarian. To Paul, not only made a point of it, she actually got preachy about it during the the one of the dinner scenes. And in fact, uh, they in this episode they act surprised when the guy wants to try chicken. You know, it's meat, right? Now. This still isn't definitive, but I know with total certainty, having looked this up, that there's a future episode where they establish that all the Vulcans on some mission to Earth, which I don't really remember that episode, um, they all are vegetarians. That's that's a thing. So Vulcans are vegetarians, because Spock was. Uh-huh. You know, I find myself wondering if it would have been more interesting if they were just literally herbivores. Because that's a thing. Literally incapable of ingesting and, and producing nutrients from certain types of food. That's a thing. And apparently that was originally one of the ideas for Spock. To make him an actual herbivore. That idea was torpedoed and they made vegetarianism a choice. Which goes back to my whole comments here. Anyways, sorry for going down the rabbit hole there. That's what I was trying to say earlier. But, I, like I said, I just don't have much to talk about. Because... Tolaris is just leer. <laughs> and then there's this bit, this really uncomfortable bit, where Archer basically has to pseudo-order her to interact with them. And she has a line that really made me laugh. Just because they smile and eat chicken doesn't mean they've mastered their emotions. That's actually a really good point. Just because they are more human does not make them in control of themselves. One of the biggest reasons why Vulcans are in control of their emotions is specifically because of the idea that their emotions are very volatile and strong, and, ergo, they need that control. Otherwise, they turn into uh, Talaris, <laughs> to put it bluntly. Now, then, oh my god, then Archer says, unless my instincts are way off, they don't seem too dangerous to me. Huh. Then he's a super creeper. Then Archer basically asks her to go on the ship, which she's obviously very uncomfortable with because Archer's a moron who can't pick up on anything. Like, you'll notice we're like halfway through the episode here. Like, it's just, this is why I stopped to talk about vegetarianism and, you know, uh, the, the impulse thing. Because there's just a little to talk about, except, except, except. One of the things that I find myself wondering is if they were trying to retcon uh, Vulcan existence. I don't know if they were or not, or if this was just a matter of bungled writing. Lord knows I've already pointed out three other instances of it in this episode. But the idea they try to posit is that Vulcans purge their emotions on a regular basis. Now, that's not what Vulcans do in modern Trek. And i got to add that proviso. This is why I'm kind of... Huh. Because I remember future stuff 
But I don't know if this is addressed in Season 1 or Season 2. So I'm kind of off the grid here, so to speak. The idea that Vulcans regularly go out of the way to not master their emotions is odd to me. You know, full-on removal or suppression rather than trying to make it so that they have control over it. Since the control over emotion is the Vulcan way, at least as of modern Trek, right? Again, I have no idea if any of this is deliberate or not. You want me to make a knee-jerk uh, judgment call? I'd say that it absolutely was not deliberate. And then later people retconned this to make this make sense. I mean, let's be honest, that's season four in a nutshell, isn't it? Let's retcon everything to make it make sense. But I'm getting ahead of myself. So, that this is interesting, though, because one of the things that lead me to thinking this is Paul goes to their ship and they start talking about Surak's teachings. And he mentions that we believe motions should be mastered, not removed. To which I was like, uh, yeah. Shoot, am I wrong? Oh, God, I'm wrong about everything, aren't I? Everything you know is wrong. Sorry, um, <clears throat> copy wrong. I find myself curious, though, since this is post-Voyager, at least in real life, and some of you may or may not remember, but there's an episode in Voyager where Tuvok has flashbacks, no, not flashback, to when he was a child and not in control of his emotions. And he has to go to a very special class, basically, to this one guy in a cave, in order to learn to master his emotions, to retain that self-control. I actually legitimately like that episode, and I remember it fondly, especially given the insight it gives in Vulcan upbringing. Because it was pretty well done, and the guy was legit, and the whole point was about self-control, which is something I believe very firmly in, because if not, we would be a bunch of um, less-than-dogs, put bluntly. Dogs would have better self-control if we had none, because dogs do have self-control. You know what I mean? Anywho, <clears throat> so I'm with the idea, and this idea of different people having different interpretations of a sacred text, well, that's not exactly an unusual idea for a human, no, is that? So, I'm kind of with the idea, and then, of course, they just kind of skip over it, and it's hard to go with it, especially since this guy is just so obviously a creeper. God, he's just so creepy. Ugh. I looked up the actor, but he hasn't been in anything else Star Trek, and I didn't recognize his other movie lists, so I was just, whatever. So, <clears throat> Cove, Cove, hmm. meanwhile, he's actually, he's still being cool. He's still being cool. And I do like his scenes, and they bond a little bit. I love the idea that there's tons of misconceptions about humans, because we're new to the galactic community, and because misinformation is probably spreading wildly. It's not that hard for information that is partial or semi-inaccurate to be spread, and then when it's spread again for it to be exaggerated for whatever reason, either because they're trying to make it sound serious or they're trying to tell a good story or whatever. So I'm actually kind of with that. My God, you sleep half the day and you eat six times a day. and Oh, my God, it's horrifying. It's like, no, 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 no. Close, close to the truth, not quite there. So I like the idea of him and Tucker kind of getting, you know, having a bond and connecting. And it also shows how a simple Vulcan, well, basically, it gives us something other than Creeper Man. And I'm just glad for anything other than Creeper Man. This naturally leads to them talking about sex. This is also where the Ponfar is mentioned. Boy, I'm sure glad that he tells this to Reed and Tucker, who are two people who are not the kind of people to put that in their log. Otherwise, there might be official information about the Ponfar in the future. And that would be nonsense, wouldn't it? By the way, 
as a nitpicker, continuity guy, the many things that exist in Enterprise that are then first discovered in later Star Trek things kind of irritates me. Just being honest about that. This is a minor example. I can skip over this one. We'll have a couple bigger ones soon. Anyways. So. Uh, they talk about Echo 3, and they use the the thing to ping back to Earth base, and Saval heard that the Vulcan ship docked with them. What? This isn't... This, there's no grapevine in deep space. How did Soval find information about a rogue and isolated, effectively banished Vulcan ship docking with Enterprise? The only feasible answer is either they actually have spies on board that ship, or they have a nearby ship spying on them. Which, oh god, that's exactly what they intended, isn't it? Oh god, what were you guys thinking? So he finds out, and he asks on behalf of a councilman, hey, you know, his son is Cove, can they please talk, blah, blah, blah. Which leads to some good character stuff between Cove. Cove? I don't remember how they... They only say it like once in the episode. Um, there's some good character stuff with Tucker and him, talking about regret. It was a good bit. And I, I wanted to give credit where credit is due, because he talks about it as something that you would think is much lesser, but he does so in a way that then brings his very personal experience. And this is something I do all the time, actually. You know, I don't have experience fighting off the Borg, but I can tell you what it feels like to be incapable of walking because my leg doesn't work right. And I can use that personal experience to relate things to you guys, and I often do when it comes to my show, and real life in general. That's just kind of how I talk. The reasoning being, because it's so personal and real to me, you now understand how I feel as I relate it to you from a deeply personal memory. And thus it feels more real to you and can connect to you and the, the topic at hand, whether it be Star Trek or having to talk to your dead father. So I'm actually with that. It's a good scene. Other than the music choice, music choice is bland and dumb, as it usually is in this show. Which leads us to... So, T'Pol has a dream. I will give the episode credit on two fronts. First of all, she blows out the candle and it immediately segues to the dream. Nice touch. The second thing they do, it's, it's a good visual segue, the second thing they do is the dream jumps between thought processes pretty accurately. You know, random desires, emotions, copied with immediate memories, copied with distant memories, which are connected by a thread which makes sense to the brain. In this case, the thread of emotion. She's remembering a time when she experienced emotion, and it's connecting to now when she's experiencing emotion. This is probably the best time to mention the idea of some, something that was actually torpedoed, thank goodness, in my opinion. I, God, I just can't talk straight for some reason. In my opinion, this would have been a mistake. They had the idea that T'Pol was half Romulan. Um, I really dislike that idea for several reasons. But the only reason I'm going to share right now is because I think that actually does her character a disservice. That there has to be some kind of biological explanation for why she is capable of being more bending or having a slightly smaller stick rammed up her rear. Like the fact that there needs to be some biological explanation for that kind of irritates me on several levels, you know. 
So, I'm glad they decided not to go with that. Either way, she's disturbed by the dream. Duh. She goes to sickbay, tells Flox what's going on. Flox tells her something that actually stuck with me, because it makes perfect sense. These people have been doing this for years. You just started. If you're going to pursue this, be very calm, very cautious. Naturally, what then happens is he goes over to the uh, she goes over to the other ship. They talk about the dream. He creeps out. By the way, I'm not actually joking. Every time there's a scene with him, I actually have a note like, "God, he's a creeper." Down a few bits, creeper, and then the half Romulan thing I just mentioned, and then down there we have creeper <laughs> one more time because we're coming up to the big creepy scene, the really bad one because. There's this bit where Archer comments on how weird it is that she's spending so much time with the others. And Tucker gives the Starfleet gospel, which is, You must be with your own kind. I've pointed this out quite a bit when it comes to Star Trek, because it's a weirdly recurring trend. The whole idea of, You must be with your own kind. This is a long-standing thing that I just don't even begin to get when it comes to Star Trek. But either way, that's just Tucker giving the gospel there. But then she goes in. Oh yeah, by the way, amusing anecdote. The type of jazz music that plays in the jazz uh, club that she went to in the past is called fusion jazz. Ha ha. Anyways, so then they start a mind meld. I actually can't talk about this as much as I'd like right here. But it's disturbing as crap. It is appropriately creepy. Again, this is, the this is the ultimate creeper moment. It is appropriately creepy. It's appropriately invasive. I will give the episode credence on this one point. It is not... It's not about gender, basically. It's about the fact that it is a Vulcan invasively forcing their mentality onto another Vulcan in a way that, causes that potentially causes actual brain damage and landed her in sickbay. The genders don't matter. If it was male, male, female, male, female, female, or male, female, doesn't actually matter. And I only bring that up because I have heard a few people say, Ugh! It's another woman being abused on Star Trek. And they're right, because it's just a thing for some reason. See, Troy, who has to go through this twice across TNG's run. Minimum, depending on how you define it. Let's not even talk about what Crusher went through. But the reason I bring this up is more to get across the fact that I will give the episode credit that this is portrayed as a really bad thing. This is clearly the climax of the episode. No, it's no pun intended. This is, this is the big reveal moment. This is the... Uh, a word that means climax but isn't. God damn it. <laughs> because that's the whole point. This is the conclusion of the dilemma. He is trying to force his mentality upon her because he is, he is effectively zealoting on her. The, my way is the right way. You should do this. No, you should do this. And then she says stop. And what does he do? I'll give you a hint. It is not stop. So she forces him off. And I should just say, I just in my notes, I just say stop in quotes. And then Jesus, because God, dude. And we find out that she might have neurological damage. That's the other reason I can't talk about this all that much yet. Either way, this then leads to Archer calling him in, and what happens is an interesting scene, because I find myself wondering if Archer had this planned out. It kind of sounds like he did, but he's really amiable and helpful at first, and I almost wonder if he was trying to give the guy a chance to own up, to fess up. 
Instead, he doesn't, so Archer pushes and provokes him until the guy nearly kills him. And then Archer pulls a gun. Thankfully, right where he was tossed by. That's, that's, boy, that's convenient, isn't it? So then, you know, get off. Get off the ship. And after that horrific display, we then have Kov again, or Kov, or whatever his damn name is, having a nice little moment that he actually connected with his father. So that's nice. The end. One of the bits to Paul says earlier is how dangerous they are. And obviously she is right, but what's really strange here is she's also wrong. I don't know if the episode did that on purpose. I don't know if I'm willing to give credit. I have a concept. I'm going to talk for a second. I have a concept I call the writer factor. Now, a factor is it's, it's one of the elements of an equation in math, like a multiplier, right? The writer factor is thus how much you trust a writing staff when it comes to analyzing a work of fiction. I've talked about this concept a few times here or there. In fact, we even brought this up recently when it came to you know deciding what is considered canon over in uh, Shadows of Pajama, I think. But sometimes you have to question if a writer is competent enough, if you have enough trust in them, if the writer factor is high enough, the trust in that writer, so that you can then read into things. Let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. Let's say you're watching a show and the actor does something that's out of character, okay? There are three possible broad categories of what's happening there. Number one, a screw-up that they just didn't fix in, 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 with a retake or whatever. So that's easy to throw out and usually easy to, to call out. It's usually very apparent. Oh, yep, writer screwed up. Moving on. It's also one of the rarest of these three categories. The second thing is that the writer uh, or the director, which has also happened, is just wrong. They are messing up or didn't think something through or whatever. So they're out of character because it's a screw-up on behalf of the creators, not the actor. This is often referred to as character assassination. The first thing that can happen of, of these three is that it's a hint. It's foreshadowing. It's an indicator that something's off or wrong. And thus, that's supposed to make you go, huh... And you see why the writer factor is so important, because the difference between one and two is a, is gargantuan. The difference between, ugh, they're doing this with Picard again, versus, wait, what's up with Picard? There's a huge gulf there. The, this is why I, I talk about this uh, now, and, and have discussed concepts about this many times across Star Trek, uh, and in fiction in general. Which brings me to this episode. I don't have enough faith a high enough writer factor in the creators of this episode or season one or two Enterprise in general to believe that this is foreshadowing. Instead, I believe it's far more likely that what's happening is later on we will get good improv to go back and retcon things to make things make sense. Now, that's not just a comment on the quality of the writers, though. Remember, even reasonably higher quality writers, Deep Space Nine, did improv constantly. As I discussed going through Deep Space Nine, they had tons of backloaded storytelling. Very, very, very little of DS9's story was plotted out in advance. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with a good retcon. So while I don't like this episode, and I don't, it'll be interesting to see if any of this stuff pays off satisfyingly later when it is retconned. Either way, 
I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, and we went down the rabbit hole three times this week. I will see you guys next time.